Oh, I can tell you all the secrets. No, I won't. Key trainer must be the person who teaches the interpreters how to open the boots. That's right. I've got this really big key ring and then I go from one booth to the other. (laughs) (laughs) I can just imagine the janitor opening up, like walking up the boots last thing at night going, what have they done in here? Easy. But he's not here today, so it's it's all us. Exactly, that's why you can make that joke and get away with it. He's sitting in an interpreting booth somewhere. <sighs> Lucky boy. What is he actually like in person? <laughs> I had a colleague who had the hots for him. <laughs> you see where this is going. <laughs> Welcome, this is Troublesome Terps, the podcast about the topics that keep interpreters uh, up at night. And I have the good news first for you today. It's not going to be a pure manal, as is often the case, so that's good. (laughs) And you've heard him there. I'd like to welcome, first of all, our interpreting scholar from Edinburgh, Jonathan Downey, PhD. Good evening. (laughs) Thank you very much. Calling me our interpreting scholar makes me sound like a little pet. Maybe I'm a Scottish or something. (laughs) You're actually our resident interpreting scholar, so there you go. We we are missing one of the crew. Um, Our iconic lineup is incomplete today because we have lost our little elf. Alexander Gansmeyer is off interpreting and enjoying the life of luxury, I'm sure. But we wish him all the best, and we hope when he listens to this podcast, it'll go, I'm sorry, I missed that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's, he's going to say that. And there was a hint in there with the little elf. We'll get to that in a minute. But first of all, um, I wanted to welcome today's guest, Karin Reithofer, who joins us from Vienna. Good evening. Hello. Hi. <laughs> hey, good to have you on the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So I said there was a little bit of a hint um, in there because tonight we are going to be talking about English as a lingua franca. And if you abbreviate that, it gives you a tiny little elf. Yes. So that's that's the topic for today. <laughs> exactly. Because as we all know, everybody speaks English extremely well. And that's why interpreters are doomed. So that's that. That's the setup for the show tonight. Um, We're all but, positive set. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, we always start on a positive note here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but um, I'm going to introduce our guest first of all, because I've known Karin for a, a few years now. I'm not going to go into any more details because we're, we're still young, young at heart and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, I suppose we, we started, we both work for the European institutions. Uh, Karin is an accredited freelance um, interpreter for uh, Romanian, among other languages. So that's how I know her, because I have Romanian too. And I, I suppose we started more or less at the same time. So shortly before Romania joined the EU in 2007, is that right? Yes. No, I, I, I had my test in 2007. I think you were already accredited then, weren't you? Well, that's close enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, you are based in Vienna. Karen? Yes, I am. And, but that's not where you studied interpreting, is that right? Um, well, I first studied, well, I did my 
first MA at Graz University and then slowly walked my way up. No, I actually went to London after that and did the, the Masters in Conference Interpreting in Westminster. Oh, still running. Poor old Westminster. Yeah. Yes, good old Westminster. Very good course, unfortunately. It doesn't, it's not around anymore. And yeah. yes, then I went to Romania where we two actually met. I think you True. came there um, with your MA in Gamma Time, didn't you? Yeah, with the EMCI, that's, that's right. That's where we met. Yeah. And then only after that, I came to Vienna to do my PhD here in Vienna, where I'm based now. Yeah. So we'll get to the PhD in a minute. But first of all, I'm, I'm curious, um, how did you know that interpreting was for you? Did you kind of stumble into it? Did you always know you wanted to become an interpreter? Oh, difficult one. Um, no, not really. I mean, I, I always liked languages. And after I did my A-levels, I went to first London and then Italy and hoped that in that gap year I would finally know what I was going to do. And then when I came <laughs> back, I still didn't really know. So I thought, okay, interpreting sounds interesting enough. And then it really turned out to be interesting. And um, yeah, turned out I wasn't completely useless at it. So yeah. No, I can confirm that you are not. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't actually but worked together though. So have we? Oh, I don't know. Maybe once or twice. I don't know. Uh, Not very often in any case. No. Yeah. Such is the life of the little yes. interpreter cog in the big European machine, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> as it were. Okay. So you knew that interpreting was a thing and sort of you were good at languages and thought that could be something for me. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, I started off in Graz and I I didn't really know what would be a good choice of languages. So I started with a great combination of Italian and Spanish. Um, well, that is a good and combination. I did some, well, not really. And then I did yeah. some Russian. And after that, I said, I, I should also add English to my official combination. This is really why I did the MA in Westminster. And yes. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. English, How many languages do you have? Yeah, I'm kind of surprised because I didn't know you, you had Russian in there as well. No, 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 I don't have Russian. No, no, no. I, I oh, you were going to start from did, scratch then. I did Russian for, I don't know, two or three years at university. And then I realized it's okay. too much hard work. <laughs> it's a lot of so hard work, my Russian, tell you. Just yeah. on, you know, um, I can just order something or say hello or something like that. Well, at least you're not starving. That's good. <laughs> I, I did two years of Russian, but sadly for, forgot it all. Um, but yeah, R Russian is an incredible language to learn, and it's great because it prepares you to try to learn German. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's very true. I think they're on, the, on okay. the same level in terms of difficulty. So difficult, hmm. and I admire anybody who speaks one of those languages, not them being their mother tongue, really. Incredible. Mm. We have uh, quite a lot of German going on in our house at the moment. We're becoming a bit of a languagey family, which is great. It's great when you finish work and you walk into the lounge and you go, which language is that they're watching TV? They're watching YouTube in there. <laughs> and turns out it's Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> that much I would understand. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, Karin, I, I, I don't know if you have a, the same experience there, but people who work with Romanian and who are not Romanian usually get the question of, you know, why they learned Romanian in the first place or where that came from. I don't, I don't, even, not really sure we, we talked about this, but for the audience and for Jonathan's benefit, tell us about your Romanian origin story. Family origins, because that's usually the first question that you probably also get a lot from colleagues, no? Exactly. Because yeah. people look at your language combinations and they go, da 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 da, da. okay, sign us, sign us, sign Oh, Romanian. And that's interesting. <laughs> so exotic. And then everybody asks you whether you have um, Romanian family or Romanian mm. family origins, which is quite likely being from a Germanic background. But um, no, unfortunately, I don't. I had to learn all my languages from scratch. I didn't have the <laughs> nice help of, I don't know, growing up with two languages or three or four. So I started Romanian really late when I was, well, after I, I did the MA in London, I, I, I was more or less told by the EU that, or by some people in the EU that, well, having three working languages isn't really enough for us, so hmm, maybe you should add another one. And then there was this um, program by the European Parliament called the Training Assistant Grant, which I was awarded, and then I went to Romania to teach there. Basically, it's a typical win-win situation where they send a graduate there so, yeah. and have um, somebody speaking their mother tongue there for the students and the person at the same time learns the language that that was the idea and and it worked out so yeah probably the language i know not least but where i probably have the well most gaps um and still, it's a language you probably know that, Alex, that people, you know, always commend you on. Romanians will always go, if you just speak half a sentence of Romanian, they go, oh, you speak yeah, they'll, such they'll good Romanian. <laughs> yeah. Which is, it is a nice motivator, really. It is. It is very sweet indeed. Yeah. <laughs> See, I, I have a bit of Romanian family connection because my, my brother spent three years in Romania as a missionary and now translates and interprets between English and Romanian. Our family, when we were growing up, we often had Romanians through. So I'm I'm used to stuff like that by now. <laughs> oh, wow. As a missionary to Romania, really. So you're used to them bringing booze and stuff? <laughs> well, I, I'm used to stories. Yeah. I, I am I am really used to stories of Romania and the Romania Moldova border is like etched into my brain circuitry <laughs> somehow. <laughs> and and also so I mean this is the thing. So in the UK we have a lot of monolinguals. There was no way I was ever gonna grow up a monolingual because I grew up with all sorts of people through our house all the time. And I grew up reading stories of the 1989 revolution in, in Romania, uh, of, of the end of Ceausescu's reign. Um, I grew up reading about Hungary. My earliest memory was watching the Berlin Wall fall down. So I was always plugged into the world, if you like. Um, yeah, I haven't been to Romania. I must go at some point. Ah, you should. You should. It's really beautiful. <laughs> It is. It is really beautiful. Yeah. Um, so after that little sort of side note <laughs> on Romania, um, how did how did that work with the grant? So were you, you were already eyeing to become uh, an interpreter for the institutions, and that's kind of the deal that you made with the parliament. And so, or is it really just about the teaching, or afterwards do they kind of 
promise you or give you that perspective of of taking you on or letting you take the accreditation test or that sort of thing? Yes, they kind of, well, you have to agree to at least sit the test, which I think nobody would oppose to anyway. So, um, um, yes, well, they invited me, but it's obviously I had to pass the test to then work for them and... Yeah, that's the agreement. They give you the money and, well, even if you don't pass the test, you've still been there and helped um, students with German as a working language to work on their German and so on. So, yeah, it's good. It's really nice. Leap into a different world. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah. But speaking of different worlds, um, I was um, curious about the, the PhD that you then um, embarked on. So did that did that run in parallel or did you just freelance for a few years and then later on decided to go more into research or how how did that whole thing happen then? Um, well, I got back from Romania and I came to Vienna where I didn't really know a lot of people because I hadn't studied here because that's how you usually, you know, make the first contacts with ex-students or ex-teachers. So I didn't have that. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I'll start freelancing a bit, which I did, didn't go that well so I thought okay I might as well do something that I don't know makes uh, I don't know helps me in some way so I had hmm. a former uh, colleague from Graz who did her PhD with Franz Pöchacker and we met three of us and he was very enthusiastic about my idea of looking into this English as a lingua franca thing and yeah then I just started to work there and we um, got a third-party funded project and yeah it all just started to to run it always feels like I didn't really choose that it just happened somehow <laughs> yeah which which often happens I guess at least in the field of interpreting <laughs> that's my impression yeah. and uh, so that, that topic was your idea then um, do you remember how that sort of came up that idea of this topic, I mean? Well, I think it's so obvious for um, anyone who's in interpreting because you just, you're just faced with non-native speakers of English so often as, as, your, uh, as the speakers that you have to interpret. And you have all these colleagues moaning about it and saying, oh, it's horrible, BSE. Yes. And, um, badly spoken English. Yes, badly yep. spoken English. And, and I, I obviously had that attitude as well. And, and so I thought, well, I want to look into that and I want to see whether, you know, whether interpreting is maybe still better or has an added value compared to English as a lingua franca communication. And yeah, that's, that's how it all started. So, I mean, I, I noticed here in the notes that you were part of the wider project on quality and simultaneous interpreting. Was that the same project that Cornelius Wischenberger was on? Yes. And she was actually the colleague that I just mentioned before that uh -huh. introduced me to Franz Pöschaker. Yeah. Because she and I have had a lot of discussions because my PhD wasn't about confidence interpreting at all. It was about interpreting in church. And it was the same. I kind of, so six months into my PhD, I completely changed change track because I wasn't going to be able to do what I wanted to do. And I ended up looking at expectations of interpreters. And again, for an interpreter, that's kind of an obvious thing to ask. You know, what are our clients trying to get us to do? Um, uh -huh. And that's how I came across Cornelia's work. And there seems to be, this, there seemed to just be this stream of work that was heading in the same direction. It was it was a lovely period 
in interpreting research. It was just uh -huh. like a lot of work going the same way. It was great. Uh, totally, totally. Yeah. I think, so how did you find, so you mentioned that you came into the PhD with the same ideas that a lot of people had that, you know, this badly spoken English and English as a lingua franca is this horrible thing. Uh -huh. And to an extent, I still hear it. But um, was that your impression at the end of the PhD or did you find out things that you weren't expecting? No, actually, um, my attitude changed completely, but not just because of what I did myself, but also because I um, got to know the so-called elf team of the <laughs> University that's, that's of <laughs> yes, of the University of Vienna, the um, Department of English Studies. So there's a big research group that focuses exact, exactly on English as a lingua franca in the fields of in the field of English studies. And they, their attitude to English as a lingua franca is like the complete opposite of what we have in mind when we think of BSE and so on, because um, uh, they say that, well, considering the fact that four out of five speakers of English are nowadays non-native speakers, we have mm. to stop judging them by native speaker standards. We have to stop saying, it's native speakers who determine what English is and what standard English is and so on. And, you know, even though there was some resistance uh, on my part at the beginning, I kind of got to see their point, which um, I think is something that all interpreters more or less should acknowledge that it's true that, you know, English is just used in so or by so many non-native speakers and very often it works quite okay well at least the communication flow isn't stuck completely and just because we have a lot of problems with it as interpreters doesn't necessarily mean that it's you know just crap altogether and and that's more or less <laughs> the 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 change of, of 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 attitude i have i had till the end it still i mean it still happens to me that i'm in the booth and i think oh my god why doesn't he speak his mother tongue and it's so annoying but yeah in general, thinking about it afterwards, I go back to my more peaceful attitude. <laughs> no, but it's true. But there's a, there's a lot of there to unpack. First of all, what is English? Because even you know, even among native speakers, there's a lot of variety in English from Australian English, you know, uh, Canadian English, what have you, and other varieties. And and then you know, yeah, but also the definition of what does lingua franca mean? What's what's the purpose of using English? And um, and I agree as well that there's a uh, there's a specific attitude in some interpreter circles towards that. And I mean, there's a difference as well. Sometimes the the speaker's native language maybe isn't available for interpreting, so they have no choice but to speak English. And sometimes they do have a choice and they choose English as for some reason. So um, yeah, it's it's. I think it's much more complicated than meets the eye at first. I think there's, al there's also a social variable. So English is still at the moment a highly prized language. And it says something for a business person that they can stand up and address a meeting and something appro approaching English. I think as interpreters, we often get locked into, as Karin said, and you were right about what's good for us. But if you think about it, you know, it gives an amazing impression for someone who's trying to, you know, impress an audience of 300 people from all around Europe. If they can address the conference in the prestige language, it, it makes them look better. It might not make our job easier, but if they do well it makes him look better <laughs> if they do well yeah if they do well i mean <laughs> I, I have a story of um i was doing a construction conference 
and there were two Italian presenting teams. The first Italian team decided to present in what could be generously called English. <laughs> and, and all four interpreting booths were just going... But you could see even within like five minutes, even the audience were kind of banging their heads off their chairs or going onto their phone or totally <laughs> swinging backwards and forwards. Yeah. And like no one went to that company's booth at lunchtime because they were like, we don't know what they're doing. I think it was at break time. And then the second Italian team came up, realized there was an Italian booth, spoke in Italian. My Italian, my Italian colleagues did such a good job. They actually got highly commended by our professional association. And that, that, that Italian team got a standing ovation. I <laughs> think, you know, we, we, you don't really need to present any more of a case than people fiddling with their phones versus standing ovation. You know, which one would you rather have? Uh, totally, totally. But I think that's the thing. You, you can't talk about the English as a lingua franca. You have highly proficient speakers of English, which, um, you know, can use English very well in any communicative setting or you might have a communicative setting where it's okay to not to use mm. not so proficient English but um, I think what, what's a problem with interpreters sometimes is that you know whenever somebody starts speaking English with the slightest accent they go oh <laughs> and I think yeah. that sometimes a bit counter counterproductive because we limit ourselves because we're already so annoyed with it that we spend so much energy on being annoyed that um, it takes some time to then get into the interpreting mode. But that said, it, it's still totally true that there are some speakers that are just not interpretable. Does that word exist? <laughs> it exists now. So, <laughs> but, I mean, we had this discussion on Twitter recently about, you know, should interpreters have a neutral accent where one, there's no such thing. Linguistically, there's no such thing as no. a neutral, a neutral no. accent. So let's get, but also, I wonder if it's to do with the prejudices that we have as interpreters, that we, because we find certain accents easier, easier to interpret, hmm. we would rather hear that from both sides when actually, you know, I enjoy it on, you know, if I'm doing fisheries policy or certain manufacturing jobs when I'm interpreting a Scotsman. Especially, <laughs> you know, if there was once where they flew people up from London for a job and people who had not really heard Scotsman before were like, how are you interpreting him? It's like, this is normal. It's a second nature. Yeah, well, I, I, I totally feel you. Well, being Austrian, you know, I have colleagues from other booths constantly telling me, oh, these Austrian, they're impossible to understand. And how do they speak? So I'm, I, I totally understand what you mean. And I totally agree, yeah. But I mean, given given all these complexities and and the many things that that sort of play into English as a lingua franca, how did you even approach this? I mean, where do you start? Do you look for definitions, or is was there any previous uh, research maybe on this? Well, funnily enough, there's not a lot of research, and there still isn't very much research on the topic. Even though practicing interpreters talk about the, well, it's definitely one of the main topics of the interpreters I know. Oh, yeah, for sure. Complaining yeah. mainly about English as a lingua franca. Um, well, I wanted to approach it from the conference interpreting perspective because um, the thing is these uh, elf scholars, they mainly look at English as a lingua franca used in, in very um, 
um, dialogic settings. So mm. where you have a group that discusses and then they say, yes, it always works because, you know, they're very, they have this cooperative attitude, these elf speakers, and they just um, um, help each other, paraphrase and use all these linguistic tools to, to make themselves understood and to understand the other. But well, being an interpreter, you know, that isn't always the case. And that's why we often struggle because we don't have, we usually work in very monologic settings where you have one speaker talking to the audience and they might have mm. the possibility in the end to ask some questions, but they won't be linguistic questions. So I wanted to look at this type of setting and see whether in this type of setting interpreting still has an added value and uh, i can already give you a little hint whether um, Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> um I, I i got that hypothesis confirmed yes i did yay um, <laughs> excellent <laughs> and yeah that that was the starting point more or less mm. I, I, but i Sorry, Jonathan, just a second. But um, is there any lit was there any literature outside of interpreting studies? So, just as a general linguistic topic um, for ELF, ELF, ELF. Yes, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of work. Okay, but, because that's what I would have expected. Yeah, to, to yeah, say. yeah, yeah. But mainly, um, this very because it's this very uh, ELF is a very young discipline within English studies. So it's very it's. It used to be, it's not anymore, but then it used to be quite, um, I don't know, positive and optimistic and yes, it works so mm -hmm. well and, and you have stopped just talking about standard English and so on. And um, that was quite difficult for me <laughs> at the beginning because it was so the opposite of what <clears> I <throat> uh, thought about uh, English as a lingua franca until then. But it opened, opened up my attitude and my mind to it as well. I think I've seen a couple of research. I think Michaela Abel Macasa does has done some work, and there seems to be a bit on ELF. But again, it's the the dealing with our natural prejudices as interpreters. That when we re research ELF, we will tend to you know talk about it taking over and maybe making interpreting obsolete, or talk about how it's causing problems with different markets and. How do we get past the tendency for interpreters to find a scary side of everything? You know, technology is mm -hmm. going to take our jobs. ELF is going to take our jobs. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like everything we, we put our hands to is going to take our jobs at some point in time. Well, on the one hand, I think you have to acknowledge that it's partly true. It is true that English as a lingua franca did take a lot of jobs for i mean in in most countries you know on the private market have the have the have the situation that it's for an international conference maybe you have um in austria for example german plus english for all other international guests or speakers so i think that that is is a reality that you have to acknowledge but on the other hand um there's things that 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 you mentioned before that people see that some people just don't get a crew or can't get their message across in English. So um, I think it's um, acknowledging that it is definitely competition to interpreting. It's a different mode of, of, of communicating in a transcultural way, but we still, we can have an added, well, interpreting can have an added value if done properly and on a very high quality level and so on, I think, I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm beginning to see 
beginning to, to think about some previous discussions that we've had on the podcast and also perhaps that there's a book coming to my mind right now. I'm not sure which book. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm curious. <laughs> no, so I, I wrote a book, 2016, it came out, published by Routledge. Um, it'll be in the show notes. But I mean, the first chapter of my book was basically, <laughs> if interpreting is going to survive, we have to be adding value. And it, it seems that we, it's funny, it's whatever conversation we have as interpreters, whether it's technology, ELF, mm-hmm. um, clients being pickier, rates, it all comes back to, are you adding any value? Totally. No, uh, I totally agree. And it, it's, it's becoming the, the central thing. I mean, on the flip side of ELF, and this is something I didn't expect, I was at a, a, a conference called International Confex, which is where one of the big international forums for the events industry and one of the leaders of uh, an events software, events management software manufacturer was on a panel on di- diversity. And his view was the ELF in the events industry is actually becoming less popular. And they're actually going back to truly multilingual events or just doing an event in the language of whatever country they're in. So could it be that the trends that we've seen in interpreting could be tending towards reversing perhaps because people have seen the problems of ELF or because diversity is becoming more of a thing or because the power of English may be, you know, there are several mechanisms that might mean that the whole trend could reverse. Are you seeing that or would you be surprised if that happened? I think totally reversed, no, probably not because, I don't know, some 20 years ago in Austria you would have these big conferences with English, uh, Italian, Spanish, French and so on and Hmm. I I don't see that happening on the private market, at least in Austria. I don't know what it's like in Germany or countries like that. Um, But uh, there's definitely the thing that for uh, sometimes very, um, well, very delicate settings or settings where people realize that they will make a fool out of themselves if they don't speak English well enough. There you can see the trend. And I think that's something that you can see in the EU as well, no? I don't know if uh, Alexander agrees because you used to get a lot of politicians who spoke really bad English and then they found themselves on YouTube um, and everybody made fun of them. And then they realized, oops, maybe if I want to get across or get my message across and not Mm. look like a fool, then I might want to, well, use an interpreter. And I think that that's something that does happen more and more. What do you think, Alex? I don't know. I think the situation plays an important role. So if it's, if it's something that's public, Mm -hmm. um, then I think the, that would be more of a wish to maybe use, use interpreting to get the message across. And also, I mean, it's always been true that interpreters make for a nice, um, I don't know, like nice props almost, you know, because if uh, also good looking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also Thank just you. the I mean just the fact of using interpreters, you know, it shows that you're a politician of a certain standing that you can avail yourself of of interpreters. So I think that's that's one thing. So in maybe in closed meetings it's already it's already different. But it's also true, I think, that um and I think you've you mentioned that a bit earlier, that there is this this sort of expectation in in the wider public that you know, politicians or, or people who go to these international meetings are supposed to be fluent in English, whatever that means, you know, whatever you understand by fluent. So I think there's the, there are, that for me, there's no clear trend in, in one or the other direction. It's sort of different factors at play. And I find it difficult to, to, 
to say where the whole thing where the whole thing is headed. Um, I'm, I'm not usually a doom and gloom person, so I wouldn't say, yeah, you know, English is going to take over in the next five years. Um, but um, let's just say I'm a bit more pessimistic about the development of English or ELF, to be precise, than I am about the development of language technology. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think though this is this is the point is that we can't fully forecast. I was surprised to hear that from from uh, the guy at the International Confix. But then on the other hand, it kind of makes sense because I did a, an interpreting job not so long ago where I found out that the chief executive of the British company spoke fluent French and the French buyer who was coming to try and sign off on a contract spoke fluent English. But the French buyer said in French at the start of the meeting, I could do this in English, but I don't want to. And the chief executive told me at the end of the meeting, I understand French perfectly. I just didn't understand what was going on. <laughs> and those it's those kind of experiences. And I must say, I've seen them more in business interpreting than I have in the kind of more procedural conference interpreting. You know, you don't hear that so much at AGMs, but, you know, when it's a business deal or when it's a big conference, when they're trying to sell some goods, you do hear people say things like that or come up to you know thank you for being here and making a difference it's, it's when they that they couldn't have so nice without us that they're happy yes. yeah i've just ne i've never ever in my entire career had a client come up at the end of an agm or anything internal admin and say we couldn't have done it without you because the reality is they probably could <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i think that's the same thing in politics or business when they want to sell something well in business they want to sell i don't know product or whatever and in politics they might want to sell themselves to their voters and so on that's a good point just, yeah. just looking at the european parliament all the plenary debates well they're very multilingual because the politicians then put it on their Facebook page or I don't know, on their personal website, or that's a way of communicating with their Branding. voters. Whereas <laughs> maybe in, I don't know, a trilogue, uh, they might happen to be, and they will probably speak English because, well, they're just, I don't know. Nobody will ever know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it's the, true though. It is the, I've had colleagues really complain to me about, you know, this job being lost and that job being lost. And my answer is, well, where are the jobs being created? It, it may be that we lose the internal AGM administrative stuff, but in return, we up our skills and we get the, the press conferences, the PR, the sales, the, the outward facing stuff. And that's kind of okay because the good thing about outward facing stuff is it tends to create more outward facing stuff. Oh, totally. So, but, so if you get a good sales meeting, it tends to create another one. Mm, yeah, Whereas if, totally. you get a good, if you get a good AGM, well, you've had a good AGM, well done. <laughs> yeah, totally. But of course, this all depends on you really doing a good job. And I think that's where quality comes in and where um, people working on the grey market not only destroy the market but destroy people's confidence in, in interpreting because as soon as I don't know one of these managers he is really bad interpreted at a conference he just thinks ah oh, I might well might just do it in English next time so um, obviously it's quite difficult to you know you can't really ban people from <laughs> being bad interpreters but I don't know I don't know what well, you could I, do. I, I'm, I'm also beginning to think that 
assuming basic level training, the quality of the interpreter isn't always determined by the interpreter, if that makes sense. I mean, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the word quality anyway, but if, for example, you have a client who sends in an accurate brief and the paperwork doesn't make any sense or the paperwork tends, doesn't really, you know, there's a whole lot, of, a whole lot of factors that can destroy the quality of interpreting, even if you have the world's best interpreter. Hmm. And there's, a whole, there's a whole lot of things that can make mediocre interpreters look really good. Uh-huh. And actually, the, the more I study clients, the more I realize they're not judging interpreting with the same criteria that we are. No, obviously not. But... And if you if you learn their criteria, you actually realize that there are things that we take as gospel that aren't as important to them. You know, they, uh-huh. they've got their own priorities. That's why I don't like the word quality, because I don't think we can ever set a kind of universal set of criteria. Yeah, it's not a useful term, that's true. Oh, I'm going to get in so much trouble from France for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be all right. It'll be hitting me over the head with the Encyclopedia of Interpreting Studies in a minute. <laughs> if, if you, yeah, Jonathan, if you have any any sort of geeky questions about the research methodology, this is probably a good time to get them in. <laughs> Otherwise, we can we can move on. Yeah, well, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not going uh, to ask about the the survey design and you know that that thing. But yeah, I think Karin, we yeah, I don't know if we really um I think we got sidetracked when I asked the question earlier of how you sort of approached your your thesis or the the work. I mean, how did you get started on working on ELF? Did did you I mean you said you looked at previous research, um and I suppose you talked to other scholars as well. But I mean what was what was sort of your method? Did you did you look at a lot of literature? Did you have a survey or, or both? Or? Well, no, I had um, um, something like an experiment, but it was sure from the beginning that it would have to be um, listener-based, listener-focused. I didn't just want to look at what do interpreters do with ELF or so. I wanted mm. to see whether we have an added value, and you can only do that by seeing what a, an audience with interpreting uh, versus an audience with uh, ELF would um, I don't know, take away from from, from okay. speech. Yeah. So um, what I did or what we did in, in this whole research group, because two of the other people, not Cornelia Zwischenberger, but two of my other colleagues also then used the same method, was we had um, a big audience. For me, it was all together with the pilot study, about 140 people who... Um, listened to uh, an original speech by an Italian speaking English, <laughs> Italians <laughs> again, but he was a professor at Bocconi University. So he was somebody who was very used um, uh, to giving speeches or speaking English, but with a mm-hmm. very clear Italian accent. Um, so half of the audience would listen to him and then do a comprehension test, more or less. Um, mm based only on information that was only given in the speech. So it was not prior knowledge they could have because it was a very kind of exotic thing he talked about. And then the other half of the listeners would listen to um, an an interpreter doing the same speech into German and also had to do this comprehension test. And the thing was, um, the audience was... Or, well, it was an Austrian audience, but 
Mm. Somebody might say, okay, that's not comparable, but this is comparable for a, co for a conference situation because people say, okay, we can have our conference in Austria without interpreters and they all listen to English and they understand it just as well. Uh, yeah. And um, I wanted to show that it's not true. And I managed. <laughs> so this, yeah. <laughs> so it was, oh, great. Okay, before you give us the the results, so it was this a mock event. This was just set up for the research, or did you did you? Yeah, okay. So you had sort of artificial conditions that you were yes. able to no, no, totally. to steer everything. But okay, it, cool. The thing is, it, the the um, the participants were students, so it was an artificial situation, but it was still more or less like a lecture they would have anyway. So mm. it wasn't that artificial it was they knew there was an experiment but it wasn't a, a situation that wouldn't uh, happen to them in a, in a usual learning um, environment yeah i mean that's a really interesting choice because um doing it experimentally actually it, it takes away some of the standard variables like it's not a real event so you don't have to worry about you know air conditioning and background noise and how representative it is but on the other hand i think for me elf always comes in a kind of very specific context so people are speaking english for a reason they're speaking german for a reason were there any kind of field studies or studies of of real interpreting events that you were able to relate your work to and say you know this is what we found in our experiment and also there's 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 work on if you like real life events that suggest that the pattern's true there as well no not really because that's the thing obviously with any experiment you you have variables that you know um get in the way <laughs> but <laughs> the thing is we try to make it as real life as possible so it, it's very well in in the academic field or in the field of of um uh, scholarly conferences this is, would just be mm. completely normal setting having an italian professor from a university speak to students of the same mm. um uh, kind of area of specialization mm. on a certain topic so that would be quite realistic um absolutely him he was well i did a lot of um, um actually i think alexander you might have taken part in that i i, I made sure <laughs> that the accent the accent of the italian speaker was you know not too strong and not too weak i didn't want okay. somebody like you know trapatoni uh, that would have great, given great results, obviously. But I wanted to have somebody who sounded like, um, you know, um, an average user of English as lingua franca, and um, who wasn't too too bad a speaker of English, really, because that would just have been um, ridiculous. And um, yeah, that were, we tried in the in the whole design of the experiment to make everything as realistic as possible even if it then wouldn't have given that great results hmm. but i mean speaking of results you just you said a moment ago that you were able to show that it does make a difference so if, if you can give us the results sort of in a nutshell what, <laughs> yeah. what well, would you say um the, the comprehension test in the comprehension test you could score a maximum of 19 points and the group listening to the Italian speaker speaking English 
scored eight points and the other group listening to the interpretation scored 12 points, which was a mm. statistically significant. I, I, was, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> significant. Oh my God. I, I don't remember how I did the whole statistics. I, I completely forget that. forgot about that. <laughs> mm. oh, it's horrible. Statistics. It's, yeah. it's quite the skill that you, yeah, but you need to, you need to have it, I think, yeah, for totally a, a work like this. And, and we really made sure that we get that right because you have so many studies and interpreting with you know That's six true. participants and then they do <laughs> statistical analysis that you know is <laughs> not really uh, that useful so we wanted to make sure we do we get that right and this is also why we tried to get big audience and I, I, th I think as well then it's a trade-off between getting big, big audience and stats versus getting an event where there could be 20 people or 40 people and you're not going to get as good stats but you'll get more kind of you you'll get an actual event it's a really difficult trade-off and i don't think a lot of people understand this about interpreting studies is that i'm i'm a field researcher so i know straight away that my variables won't be controlled, the respondent size could be anything, and I'm going to have to work really, really hard to analyse it as deeply as I can, because you might not get another shot back. But if you're an experimentalist, your variables are controlled, your sizes might be better, but you're going to get an annoying field researcher at some point saying, ah, but that's not necessarily the same. Yeah, reality. these field researchers. But <sighs> I think that's the, thing, that's the thing about quantitative and qualitative research. I think none of the two is better, or it, it has to be a combination of both, and both has it, have their merits. So I think... Mm -hmm. Obviously, if you do quantitative research, you have some restrictions. Obviously, if you do qualitative research, you have your restrictions. But we're not looking for the absolute truth. Well, we are really, but we <laughs> would find it. Would be nice, um, though. Yeah, it would be nice. Wouldn't <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's not necessarily a difference between qualitative and quantitative because you can do quantitative field research, although it's hard to get it right. Yeah, yeah it, it is this difference between what are you prepared to accept? and what makes a good result. And to be able to get that much of a gap in the two conditions is, is impressive um, because we make a lot of small differences in interpreting studies sometimes, but to get between eight, eight to 12, that, that, that's good enough that you can go, fair enough, we'll take that. <laughs> and it, it, it's the kind of result you can take back to clients and go, what would you like, this or mm. this? <laughs> nah, well, unfortunately, I haven't really responded to it that well. Um, but um, it's actually the, the results, I think, are being used by our colleague, Jose Turi. Alexander probably knows oh, he yes. works at the, well, maybe you want to say what he does. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, he's a he's a he's a, a staff interpreter in the Spanish booth in the European Commission DGSKIC, and he's been doing um, basically awareness raising and training among uh, EU officials. So he basically brings together a group of ordinary, you know, Commission officials working in whatever field you can imagine, non-interpreters, and he tries to um, he he tries to show actually show them the uh, the added value of interpreting so he he does a role plays with them on what it's like um what what good practice and bad practice is in a multilingual meeting so how you how you take into into consideration that there are interpreters and how to make the most of it so that was a it could have been much shorter but that's basically what <laughs> what he's doing i mean this we, we've kind of begged a question here 
And yes, that was the correct use of begging the question. Now, um, we, we've kind of begged the question here as to whether interpreters themselves know what the added value of interpreting is. Because mm. I've come across not so much interpreters our age, but maybe slightly older, and I remember talking to a colleague about this, that there are many interpreters whose view of interpreting is we just get the ideas across or we just say what the speaker said. And so naturally, if your view of interpreting is we just say what the speaker said, you can't see the added value. You can't see how we're any better than machines. And all you see is all of these threats. And I wonder how easy it would be to turn it around and say, actually, the people who we need to convince about added value first are our colleagues. Hmm. Then once they're convinced, it's, it's a far easier to sell to clients because then we've had the confidence of actually building a community already that gets it. Uh, I did an interview with a, a PR professional for my upcoming book, and he said, what you do is you start with your easiest audience first. And once they get it and once they understand the message, then they can tell everyone else with you. He said the problem is that people try to do PR without having convinced the easiest audience and wondered why, why it's such an uphill struggle. <laughs> yeah, could be true. I, I have to say, I, I don't know that many interpreters who have these kind of um, idea of interpreting that they're just, you know, um, uh, what was it? Cornelia Zwischenberg actually used that in her thing. Uh, the, yeah. um, the, the model. Or, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, the conduit model. The conduit model <laughs> never goes away. Yeah. Uh, um, I don't know. Not many of the interpreters I talk to about interpreting have that idea. But you might be right. It's a generational thing, maybe. Mm. But I mean, this this begs the question. At least it evokes in me the question of um, if if the the key to solving this is actually to provide added value and to, and to be really really to provide really really good interpreting. I think then the question is how do we do this? Because I mean, ELF brings with itself a lot of challenges. You know, accents and sort of regional terminology, all that all that jazz. So I'm wondering if you did you did you have time to look at that at all in sort of in your research? I didn't really look at it myself, but there is some research by Michaela Albrimikasa Abre that you, Jonathan, mentioned before. And she did a first um, set of courses at uh, Zurich University, uh, Winterthur actually, um, where they tried to focus the training on ELF, which I, I do say that in my work that we have to, considering the fact that four out of five speakers are non-native speakers, we have to train mm. the students to mainly work from English spoken by non-native speakers, which of course can be as diverse as you can imagine. Um, but I think that should be the main, uh, I don't know, or the one of the main priorities of, of English interpreting training nowadays, because that's what you're faced with in the end. And um, obviously it's quite difficult because, um, as I was saying, there can be so many varieties or, of English as a lingua franca from, because you have the whole transfer of the first language of the speaker. So if the speaker is Italian, he will sound very different from somebody who's from Asia and so on. And what I did find in my study is that what helped um, listeners understand, and that's also interpreters, understand 
um, the non-native speaker was being familiar with um, English as a lingua franca in general or um, mm. non-native speakers of English. So familiarity was the only factor that actually had a significant impact on the comprehensibility or understandability. Mm. And I think this is just well, exposure to as many accents as possible and yeah, it's, it's very tricky how you how you do that but i think well working for the eu uh, alex you, you certainly are more used to eu kind of accents because i don't know some two years ago i worked at the at a international trade union conference and where you had all these asian and latin american accents and i was completely thrown off my track because i'm just yeah. used to this type of English as lingua franca. I'm very used to Italians or Spaniards or even maybe Lithuanians <laughs> speaking English, but not yeah. so much, um, I don't know, somebody from Taiwan or something. It's true. We have very little exposure to non-European speakers, in, um, period, you know, um, but, but certainly for English as a lingua franca. So that can be a little bit of a challenge, yeah. So I, I don't know be between the two of you, do, do you know any, um, do you know if, if any interpreting training courses already try to um, sort of take that on board and to provide more training or more exposure simply to non-native English for, for their students? Well, as I was saying, um, Michaela Alvin Mikasa did that in Winterthur. There was regular, regular courses with their regular students. And I think most teachers of English I don't at least have a few speeches of non-native speakers in their course, but I think it's not necessarily done in a systematic way. And I think that would, you know, have to be the case in the future, probably. I think also there's a need to help people understand how to pick up when words are em emphasized in an unnatural place. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I find difficult is when you do an event, and there are sometimes speakers who are, okay, I'm just going to say ex-EU people who've got a job out in the wild somewhere um, in some association or some business. And they're so used to EU speak and they are so used to certain emphasis patterns. When you interpret them, you're going, I'm not sure what word they actually use there. And most of the time, if you're a professional interpreter, that's not going to be a big deal. But there are times where you think, no, I really do need to know what that actual word was, and that becomes difficult. <laughs> and so schooling yeah. people in, you know, a word like administration, the emphasis there can fall pretty much <laughs> anywhere you like. And then the number of times I've heard governance. Oh. <laughs> um, and uh, what is it? Financial is the other one I've heard a lot. <laughs> and to, to get people used to hearing familiar words said in very unfamiliar ways, especially administration administration and governance. Yeah. It's always, I mean, they, they come <laughs> up so often. Um, politically, yeah, it's right, okay. Right. <laughs> now I'm used to it, I'm fine, but when you first come across it, you think, what word is that? <laughs> I mean, it's one of those fields, isn't it, where you can really show that um, a native speaker like you, Jonathan, for example, is not necessarily in the best situation because they may not be used mm. 
may not be so used to these weird accents to put it very very simply and very bluntly um but it, it seems that this this would be a good uh, this this makes another case again for these online practicing groups for example where because if if you if you didn't have that during your interpreting training i mean i didn't surely so um there's a way to sort of stay up to date with that or uh, you know uh, have have some of that training um, for yourself, so maybe that's that's something that we can that we can take away. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good idea. I wanted to switch to uh, um, another thing um, real quickly, um, which is, and I think Karin, we talked about this um, at an academic conference not too long ago. <laughs> um, the whole, and, and you mentioned it earlier as well, the whole sort of judgmental um, attitude that exists towards ELF BSE. We're just going to, going to call it English for now. Um, it, apparently, you were not familiar with BSE. BSE has a completely yeah. different connotation. In the UK, BSE means something completely different. Of course, yes. <laughs> um, so talking about that, and and I think the, the, the thing that I mentioned to you, Karin, uh, then was that um, there is this guy, J Jeremy Gardner, who has this very famous guide on sort of bad English or typical English EU jargon, which is, I guess, some form of, of ELF or some, some form of, of English jargon in the institution. So um, was was that part of your research? Did I get that right? Did, did you look at these attitudes or is that something that you sort of pick up when working with colleagues? It, it wasn't really part of my research, but it was quite interesting because had I read this, his article or his collection, um, mm. Before I got to know the whole ELF team at Vienna University, I would have said, hey, so that's true, because he picks out words that are used wrongly um, mm. across the, or in most of the EU institutions. And now I have to say, well, if everybody in the institutions understand it, then Where's the point in saying, oh, no, sorry, in the Oxford Dictionary, it actually says no. da, 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 da. that's a point of um, who owns the language. And I, th I find that idea quite nice from, from, um, this is from one of the ELF scholars. And he says, how can, uh, sorry, Jonathan, native speakers still say they own this language when they don't anymore? And I, I kind of understand that it's not a, an absolute truth, but in some instances I see his point, because if everybody around the table understands it, why mm. then ask the native speaker, is this really correct? Or, you know, you see what I mean? Obviously you'd have to check yeah. for um, legal texts because they have to be, uh, you know, you have to have legal certainty. But for other texts, why, why can lang language does evolve? Uh, also when used by native speakers. So why are non-native speakers not allowed to take part in this um, evolution process? Yeah, I think it, it also depends on what the intention behind the whole thing is. So I'm, I, I can't say for sure, but I mean, to some extent, I think it also serves as, as almost a dictionary or a guideline mm. for English native speakers who are not you know, not familiar with this kind of jargon, uh -huh. who are really struggling to understand. And, you know, they can just go to their document and, and look things up and see, okay, so this is what this means. <laughs> you know, the, the, all these, these French terms that sort of creep into EU English, for example. It's a precise. So, 
Yeah. That's not <laughs> how we translate precise. But, yeah. But it, well. it, it reminds me, on the other hand, of the plain English campaign here in the UK who do their Golden Bull Awards every year. I don't know if they've done one this year. And so you, you've got these two, it's the, the prescriptivist tendency versus the descriptivist tendency. So on the one hand, if everyone in the EU understands that that's great, but then if any of that creeps into outward facing language and it confuses people, that's not so great. And it's the same with the Golden Bull Awards. And in fact, the whole plain English campaign is the jargon that's okay internally in a company when that creeps out to customers and customers have no clue what they're talking about, then that's a problem. And I think it's it's re- helping people understand and non-linguists don't always get it that, that there's some things that are absolutely fine amongst the in-group, but you need to be more careful. You need to be, if you like, more standardized when you go out of that in-group. And, mm. you know, there's the argument that no one owns English, and I would agree with that. But I think there's also the argument of no one owns English. But if you're talking about, you know, we need to precise this and it's going out, and it is in a document going out to Brits, they will laugh at you. Mm. <laughs> yeah, totally. But it's always about about the, your target group, really. And that's the thing. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree. Isn't that what Scopus theory is all about? <laughs> well, that, that's that's your target purpose, which is different. It will include it. Okay, in fair enough. But, but, <laughs> I, but I mean, the, the, this is the other thing as, as well, is that people don't realize that an awful lot of language is used as a shortcut. So we've just said on this, we can say Scopus on this podcast, and there's a whole world of meaning behind that. But then if, if, as an interpreter, we went to a client and asked them to, you know, fill in a brief and said to a client, what's the scopos? That would be wrong. <laughs> what? <laughs> Even to an extent of, of saying, you know, um, which booth regime should we apply? It's like, really? <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. How we have to do relay interpreting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what does that really mean? You think we're like Chris Akabusi running around, around with a metal rod in our hands to pass to someone else. Yeah. Or, or they just say, oh, is it really good? It's like, yes, yes, yes. It's really, <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> but the, so, I mean, we complain about English as a lingua franca, but frankly, ha, frankly, <laughs> how much jargon and how much English as an interpreting lingua franca do we misuse it? Do we use ourselves? and not realize that we're doing it. Um, especially those of us who do any communications heading out towards the wider world, we need to be totally care- We need to be very careful with that. And it'd be ironic if, you know, tell people off for misusing English and then we go off and misuse English. <laughs> I certainly <laughs> not that we would ever do that. <laughs> yeah. So Karin, as far as I know, you're, you're still continuing in your research. Is that right? Yeah, well, is it something I else? don't really have that much time anymore because um, well, I used to be a research assistant where I really just had time to do research, which was great. But now I'm a senior lecturer, so I have to mm. teach a lot. And I also mm. work at, uh, well, as a conference interpreter, I don't want to give that up um, for sure. And I have a family and I want to <laughs> have a private life as well. So um, I'm trying to... I don't know, write an article to uh, or go to some conferences, but I'm not 
um, obviously not as deep into research as Jonathan is at the moment because I just don't find mm. the time. It's very, it's very sad because I like all these things, teaching, interpreting and doing research. But I don't know. Maybe when my daughter is, is a bit older, I, I manage to do yeah. more again. <laughs> Just not enough time in the day. Uh, so so <laughs> I, I find it goes in seasons that there are some, I've had, I had a season not so long ago mm. where I was yeah. interpreting so much I couldn't really do much else. And at the moment I'm doing research and writing mostly. And it's, it just, it's, we, we have a saying in English, which is horrible to interpret saying it swings and roundabouts. and this is a saying that i would never say in public like i I would never say that as a speaker but yeah it's a very common thing you know it swings you just have to take it as it comes oh my goodness i've done it again okay (laughs) the most annoying speakers of english are the native language speakers of english (laughs) we have so many sayings that are just awful (laughs) <laughs> that's true that's true and that's another thing because i think some interpreters whose english might not be as good they're sometimes happier to have a non a proficient non-native speakers because he or she wouldn't use all your um, idioms and i don't know funny metaphors and funny ways mm. of saying things so that you, that's the other the other side of the coin really that um and um yeah 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 for for me when i if i if i was ever offered the choice between an an elf speaker and a a native english speaker it would just be six and a half a dozen (laughs) this is exactly this is exactly the problem yeah so, so um, say, send your suggestions as to what six and a half a dozen means. <laughs> <laughs> to hello at troubleturfs.com. <laughs> and we'll forward it all to Jonathan. <laughs> prize? What's a prize? Yeah. yeah. It won't be it's, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a signed, it's a signed copy of your next book, Jonathan. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> But okay. Um, but um, to run things off, I already said earlier what what I sort of see coming down the pipe for for ELF, and then I see it may be more of a no threat is not the right word, but 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 uh, a more I look at it with a bit more concern than I do look at at um, translation devices and that kind of thing. But I'd be interested in your take, sort of where where is ELF going, and what is it going to mean for interpreters in the next few years. If such an answer can be given, it may be different from, you know, depending on which region of the world you're based in. Yeah, I, I think that's that's absolutely dependent on where you live. But apart from that, I think one thing is that probably in the future, um, more and more non-native speakers of English are going to have a higher proficiency level simply because they learn it early at school. And when you mm-hmm. see young people speaking English, you don't get as many with a horrible, not understandable accent. And you get more people who can really express their ideas more or less clearly. So I think on the one hand, that makes it easier or less stressful for us. On the other hand, communication without us might as well work better. But I don't know. I will... I don't know. We we'll have to wait and see, but I'm trying to be positive about it and and be positive about all these. Um, I can't say any any countries now, but there's still some countries who don't seem to have reached that level of proficiency, even with um, younger people. So I'm. 
including the United Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it, it, it is uncomfortable because, you know, if you look at these developments, you know, you do start to wonder what's what's going to happen. I don't know. What's, what's your take, Jonathan? I'm going to be really stereotypical here and say that... Controversial? Not controversial, but stereotypical. I'm going to use the word add value again. My take is that the role of the interpreter is fundamentally shifting. And if we want to be replaced, we should hold on to our traditional view of interpreting. If we want to actually get more work and more interesting work with the growth of English as a lingua franca and speech translation and all of this, then I would say we need to start thinking out of the box and we need to start thinking, you know, where can we add value? What can we do? What kind of events are going to need interpreters, even if people do speak English as a lingua franca? You know, where mm. uh, I heard someone recently, I think it was Chris Durbin, who's a, a finance translator, saying that as far as she's concerned, the home of the excellent translator is where there's the most risk. And I would say that's probably the mm. same. The home of the excellent interpreter is where there's the most risk. And so I would say, as interpreters, we need to learn to aim at the higher risk assignments, aim at the assignments that traditionally we would be scared of and get our skills to the point where the clients say, this is a huge risk, we need humans and we need interpreters. Yeah, and what risk means depends on where you're based, what kind of clients you have, yeah. what languages you have. Or Basically, is the future of the business on the line, are jobs on the line, is safety on the line, is health on the line, is reputation on the line? So high stakes if, yeah. interpreting. Yeah. I, I think the, the the home turf of interpreters in the future is going to be high stakes stuff with mm. a little bit of pre prestigious sit there and look nice in a suit stuff. <laughs> um, but but to me, oh, we can do that. To, to me, the home of interpreting is going to be the high stakes stuff where they can't just call us a month before and send us paperwork. They're actually on the phone to us going, help, what if this goes wrong? <laughs> Someone asked yeah. me recently, what's your target market? And I said, clients whose palms are sweating, that's my target market. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's probably a good takeaway, yeah. No, totally. I agree. And I think it's it's not going to be the, it's not only high stakes, but also the difficult stuff, really. I mean, that's very often connected, but it's not going to be the nice and uh, comfy conferences we all used to like because it's not mm. preparation and, and so on. So, and this is something that Michaela Arunik has also found in her study with interpreters. And they said, well, if they need us, then it's really difficult and, yeah. um, uh, and totally relates to that uh, or to what Jonathan just said. I mean, also, there's a whole question here as to what difficult looks like. You know, difficult for some clients yeah. might be, it is highly technical, and there are some highly technical assignments that are fine. Mm. And difficult for other clients might mean, oh, um, there's a chance that someone might get upset. It's like, well, mm. you know, it's just, it, it, it really, I would say the future is we need to learn to understand clients better. I'm not just saying that because I'm a client researcher. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's it's certainly also about customer education. Well, the whole ELF thing is also about customer education. Is what I argue in my in my papers as well. That, for example, the situation I looked at the real monologic conference setting is where I believe we are an added value. Whereas we should also say, okay, it's true that in other settings you might do without us, and I think that gives us credibility if we say if we really. Um, 
tell them where they would really need us and where maybe not so much we don't have to rub it in but um <laughs> we, have to, we can um if they ask us say well in these settings we will certainly need us and others mm -hmm. it might be easier uh, not easier without us but it might be also doable maybe mm. without us that, that gives us a lot of credibility it's a very controversial I know we like that word. It's a very controversial angle to take, but I think it's the right one. And it comes back to what we've discussed here quite a few times, the idea of the interpreter as a consultant, that the client doesn't just say, come and interpret, but says, what do you think about, you know, should we have you at this management team meeting where well, the management team have known each other for 20 years? Mm. Probably not. Exactly. You know, sh should we have you at this giant press conference that our investors are going to be watching? Yes, yes, you should. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think that gives us credibility because as soon as we say, no, 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 English is a lingua franca, it never works, it never works, then they know, well, of course it works. I, I We're being dishonest, I yeah. I it very often and it worked perfectly. And um, so as soon as we are... It's working right now, <laughs> you know, <so. laughs> More or less. <laughs> yeah working as well as english ever works <laughs> <laughs> i guess so we haven't mentioned brexit but we won't yeah well done us <laughs> <laughs> although i did yeah I, i'll put a link into the show notes about some brexit related stuff because you know there's this there was this talk at least when brexit mm -hmm. happened you know, what's going to happen to English in the EU, but that's a slightly different topic. So maybe we'll do that in another episode. Do they speak English in the EU? I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah, well, that's the question, isn't it? <laughs> English. I never managed to make a joke about the National Elf Service. The National Health Service? Why, why would you joke about them? Because health, elf, it's pun. Oh. Uh, oh. <laughs> Too bad you didn't get that in. Okay, enough with the politics. Now we got that out of the way. Welcome to Troublesome Terps, the... What was I going to say? Oh. Podcast, maybe. Let's not get into it. Okay. This is your last chance, say it. <laughs>